0: Good morning church. It's my privilege to be with you all this morning. Welcome to everyone joining us in the house, those joining us online and a warm welcome to our first time visitors. It is my prayer that we would all experience the Lord today in a transformational way that he would speak to each heart individually through his eternal word and that we would not leave you the same. Amen. Amen. God's Word is not just another fairy tale or some fictional novel that has no power to transform our lives. It is the Word of the living God, and it does have the power to transform lives. It is the power unto salvation. It has the power to transform cities and nations all for His glory, and everything it says will come to pass. Do you believe that this morning? If you believe that, just give the Lord a shout of praise and thank Him for His Word that never fails. And with all of that in mind, let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for the word this morning. Father, we gather here this morning in the name of our Savior, Jesus. And we thank you that we can study your eternal truths and grow in the knowledge of who you are. Lord, as we continue in the book of Revelation today, and as we discuss some of the end-time events that may alarm us or even cause us to become anxious, We ask that you would remind us of the promises that you have in your word for your church and that all these things must take place in order for you to return. Lord, we declare that we put our trust in you, not in man, not in world leaders, not even in our own abilities. And we ask that you would give us the knowledge, courage, boldness, and Holy Spirit empowerment to live as true Christ followers until we meet you face to face. We love you, Lord, and we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Church, this morning, as we continue with our series Revealing Jesus, we finally come to the part of the book of Revelation that I think a lot of you have been waiting for. Some of you have had to endure the, the past five chapters, which we started back in October last year, and you've been re- waiting very patiently for this part that speaks about the tribulation period and the Antichrist. I don't know why, but the events of the tribulation seem to fascinate people, fascinates me. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen, and if that's you, I've got good news for you. Because we're finally at that place where we get to study the events of the tribulation and the Antichrist who comes onto the scene, onto the world scene. It all begins in chapter 6, which is where we start today, so please make your way there in your Bibles. Now, church, let me just say from the get-go that what we are heading into from chapter 6 through chapter 18 are some of the heaviest chapters, not just in the book of Revelation, but really in the whole Bible, because these chapters speak about God's coming wrath, It's heavy stuff, and there may even be times where you kind of question God in the way that He does things. But what I want you to see throughout all of these prophetic texts and throughout all of these chapters is God's heart behind all of this. You see, sometimes God has to work in mysterious ways to finally get people to heal to Him. When you think about it, He gives us, you and I, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to heal to Him. And if we are stubborn and we refuse to do that, then He will literally turn up the heat to try and get our attention, to try and get us to the place where we will finally cry out to Him. That's His heart behind chapters 6 through 18. I don't want anyone to read these chapters and think, what a loveless God, what a harsh and terrible God. Because listen, if you understand your own heart and sometimes your own reluctance to heal to the Lord... And your desire to instead live for yourself, your own pleasures and your own desires, then you can appreciate that He has gone to great lengths to win us. Amen? And if that takes at the last hour, which is literally what we're going to be reading about, if that takes at the last hour a sledgehammer in order to really wake certain people up, then that's what God's going to do because it's the final call for people to come to a place of faith in Jesus Christ. Now remember, back in chapter 5, Jesus takes the scroll from the right hand of God, which is the title deed to the earth. Only Christ is worthy to take the scroll because he is our kinsman redeemer and because he has paid the full redemptive price. And now that it's time, he's exercising his right to evict Satan and his followers and to take possession of the earth. His ultimate goal is to set up the kingdom of God upon the earth But the devil, who's also known as the lawless one, rejects Christ's authority and his right to take possession of the earth. So he not only refuses to leave, but he's going to fortify himself. He's going to dig his heels in. He's going to make preparation to resist this eviction process, and he's going to use everything at his disposal, including people, to do that. Which brings up an interesting point. All of these judgments... The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, which we'll get into in these chapters, are all controlled by God. They are all part of His sovereign plan. In other words, they are considered to be divine judgments, and they are a part of His redemptive plan to accomplish five major objectives. And let me list them for you really quick. Number one is to preach the gospel to all the nations. Number two is to bring Israel as a whole to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Number three, to evict Satan and his followers. Number four, to take possession of the earth. And last but not least, the ultimate goal, number five, is to set up God's kingdom here upon the earth. That's why the disciples were so excited after Jesus' resurrection. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And they asked him that because they knew that this is the ultimate goal of the Lord, to establish the kingdom of God upon the earth with its headquarters in Jerusalem in Israel. So all of the seals, trumpets, and bowls are working towards accomplishing these five goals. And even though this is all part of God's redemptive plan, we need to understand that God is going to use different agents to accomplish this. God is going to use the Antichrist. God is going to use humans, he's going to use angels, he's going to use demons, he's going to use the heavens, and he's going to use Satan to accomplish his plan. And the reason I point this out, church, is because in his sovereignty, even though you know this is difficult with our finite minds to comprehend, we need to try and understand that God is a master at working all these things out, and that he's going to use different agents and circumstances to fulfill his plan. You know, God's plan when Christ came the first time was for Jesus to die for our sins. And who did he use for that? He used people, he used Satan, he used angels and demons. He used the womb of a woman to bring him into this world. He was able to use that to carry out his divine plan at his first coming. And we're going to see that during the tribulation period and his second coming as well. When Jesus opens the first four seals and the the four horsemen of the apocalypse appear, we need to read that with the understanding that they are all part of God's redemptive process. And the reason he doesn't automatically just wipe everything out with a flick of his wrist is because he's going to preach the gospel to all the nations. He's going to make sure that the Jews as a whole repent and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's going to evict Satan and his followers and judge them. He's going to take possession of the earth, his rightful possession, and he's going to set up his kingdom upon this earth for a thousand years. Does that make sense, church, at least as a starting point? Amen. So let's go to verse 1 of chapter 6, and let's start getting into some of the interesting detail. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, as Jesus opens the first seal, one of the four beasts shouts, Come. And we're going to find out each time one of the first four seals is opened, a different beast will stand up and he'll shout, Come. It's a sound like thunder, and with thunder being a symbol of judgment. John knows right away that the tribulation has now begun and that this seal is now bringing God's judgment upon the earth. Quick question for you. When the first living creature says, come, who's he talking to? Anybody? He's talking to the first horseman of the apocalypse. If you're reading a New King James version, it will say, come and see, which makes you think that he's talking to John, Right? But the correct translation is, come. That's why most of us read the ESV these days, right? And it's a call to the first horseman of the apocalypse, and he's giving a direct order that it's now time for the tribulation to start. He orders him to come, and it says in verse 2 again, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer Now, church, contrary to what some people think, the rider on the white horse here in chapter 6, verse 2, is not Jesus Christ. This is, in fact, the Antichrist. Yes, Jesus is going to return to the earth on a white horse, but when he returns in Revelation chapter 19, he's not a rider without a name. Because in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says he is a rider called faithful and true. And in verse 13 of the same chapter, it says, The name by which he is called is the word of God. The king of kings and the lord of lords is coming back with the name. Amen? With that being said, why does the Antichrist then come on a white horse? Why doesn't he just come on a black horse? Why doesn't he just wear a t-shirt that says, you know what, I am the Antichrist? What does this all signify? Well, he's riding a white horse for two reasons. First of all, because he's a counterfeit. Christ the Messiah is going to come on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19, so you can bet on your life that the Antichrist, the false Messiah, is going to mimic that and come on a white horse as well. Amen? As an example, a practical example, if I want to make a counterfeit, if I want to make counterfeit 200 notes, don't you think I'd want to make them look exactly like the original? If I want to trick you with this counterfeit, I won't give you a 200 rand note with my face on it or or some American president's face on it, right? No, I'm going to put Nelson Mandela's face on it because I want you to think it is as real as possible. And that's the idea of a counterfeit. This first rider is such a good counterfeit that people will be fooled when this time comes. And this is an important point to make because the Jewish people are still waiting for their Messiah. They don't believe that he's already come. And what they are looking for and waiting for in the Messiah is exactly what the Antichrist will be like at least for the first three and a half years. When the Antichrist comes, many Jews are going to accept him as the Messiah until the abomination of desolation where he reveals his true character at the midway point of the tribulation. That's the first thing. The second reason that he's riding a white horse is because white symbolizes peace. White is the international color and and symbol of peace. Everybody knows this. You know, if you're in a battle and you want to surrender, you say, listen, I'm I'm out of this war. What color flag do you you raise? A white one, right? When the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to portray, portray himself as this great man of peace. In fact, he's going to do something that no man has ever been able to do throughout history. He's going to be able to make peace between the Arabs and the Israelis. This man is going to be able to broker a peace treaty in the Middle East. And church, when you look at all the tension and war that's taking place and going on in the Middle East today, especially with the war that has just broken out and all the the hatred that is rising, especially against the Jewish people, You just think to yourself, surely that's never going to happen. But this very convincing man of peace is going to fool people into believing that he is in fact the savior of this world. And people will believe him and they will follow him. But as I said, in the middle of that seven-year time period, he will break that covenant. The mask will be ripped off and people will see him for the wolf that he is. The, The imposter will be uncovered. You know, roughly a a century ago, this type of thing happened in Europe. A man by the name of Adolf Hitler came onto the world scene and was rising to power. And do you know that when he started his rise to power, that the Western allies, especially France and Great Britain, thought that he was the, the hero of the day? He was the man of peace who would solve the world's problems. At that time, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Neville Chamberlain, met with Adolf Hitler in Munich and came back to Great Britain, waving a peace treaty that Hitler had signed. And among the words that were written on it were, peace for our time. There was only one person who saw through the mask of Adolf Hitler, and that was Winston Churchill. But it was too late, because by the time anybody could figure that out, the world was plunged into war. And that's going to happen again, but in much greater magnitude during the tribulation period. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, when Paul writes about the day of the Lord, which refers to these final judgments in the tribulation period, he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And why won't they escape, you may ask? Because listen, this rider doesn't ride alone. He comes into town, but there are other horses coming with him. And what initially seems like a peace parade becomes a war parade. Let's have a look at verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. So the first rider on that white horse, guess what? The peace that he brings doesn't last. In its place will come devastation in the form of this fiery red horse. In the Bible, red is a color that is often associated with with, uh, carnage or terrorism. In Revelation chapter 12, there's a red dragon, and in Revelation chapter 17, there's a red beast. And just as Adolf Hitler promised promised peace, but plunged the world into war, the Antichrist will promise peace, but plunge the entire globe into the most devastating kind of war. Notice what's mentioned in verse 4. It says he was given a great sword. So, with the first rider, I don't know if you picked this up, He has a bow, but he has no arrows, which implies that he comes unarmed and in peace, but that is put down, and in its place, a great sword, an implement of destruction and warfare is taken up, and peace now vanishes from the earth. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, Pastor, you're speaking about this war that's going to take place, but we've always had war on earth at some point, haven't we? That's a good question. That's a very good observation. Because, yes, we have always had wars. Ever since man has been on the earth, and because of free will, man has figured out ways to kill each other. Whether it's with our our bare hands or, or sticks or stones or bullets or drones, we have figured out ways to go to war. In fact, most of our history has not been peaceful even though the majority of us sitting here today haven't experienced war or been part of war. But according to some interesting research done by the Norwegian Academy of Sciences, since the year 3600 BC, and this was done a few years ago, there have been 14,531 wars and only 292 years of what could be considered peace. This is approximately two and a half wars per year and one year of peace out of every 20 years. Or to bring it down to hours and minutes, it would mean that there has been only 36 hours of peace per month or one minute of peace for every four hours. That's as good as it has ever been because that's what fallen man is capable of and that's why we need a redeemer, amen? That's why we need Jesus to come back. But listen, church, as bad as it has been, it's going to increase in this period of time we call the Great Tribulation to unimaginable proportions. And that will culminate in what we could call the mother of all battles, the Battle of Armageddon. But we'll expand on that when we get there. Go with me to Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. Let's have a look at the third horse. So we've seen the white horse, which brings deception. We've seen the red horse that brings war, but there are more. There's a black horse. Verse 5 says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. So this rider has a pair of scales, and scales are used for measuring, weighing, and rationing. And church, what this represents here is the description of a severe famine that comes upon the earth at this time. Now, famine is always the result of war. Wherever there is war, as has been the case throughout history, there will follow famine. There's always a shortage of food because food supplies are destroyed and transportation is cut off. But again, the magnitude of famine that will be experienced in this time is far greater than any other time experienced on the earth. It says in verse 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and basically what this means, church, is that you would spend everything you have just to buy enough food to survive. A quart of wheat, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, was the daily allotment for a soldier in warfare. It was the bare minimum. It was the rations given to a soldier to be active on the battlefield. And then it says three quarts of barley for a denarius. Barley was considered lower in nutrition. It was normally fed to animals rather than humans. Again, pointing to the severe famine conditions more than likely as a result of war. Now, you can just imagine. At this point, John is probably thinking, I can't take any more of this. This is too much to handle. But there is one more horse that is told to come. Verse 7 says When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence. And by wild beasts of the earth. Now, firstly, the pale horse, that word pale is the Greek word chloros, so it's actually a pale green horse. And this describes pestilence, uh, plagues, and deadly diseases. Because again, as a result of war and famine, the next thing that follows is pestilence. When war comes, right, food sources become scarce, hygiene becomes a problem, and pestilence follows. So in very basic detail, right, description, that's what the pale horse represents. But church, did you get what it says in verse 8? It says that this rider doesn't ride alone. This rider has somebody with him. It's death and hell riding together. Because listen, it says here in verse 8, these horses, referring to the red, black, and pale green horses, will be given authority to destroy a quarter of the human population of planet earth. That's a staggering number of people to think about, right? Because do you know what the Earth's population is at the moment? Anybody know? Very interestingly, I read some stats the other day. It took from the beginning of recorded history, so from BC Times until the year 1850, to produce one billion people on the Earth. But it only took from 1850 to 1930 to produce two billion people. By 1960, just 30 years later, the earth was at 3 billion. By 1975, there was 4 billion people. 1987, there was 5 billion, and by 1999, 6 billion people. And today, the population of this earth right now is just over 8 billion people and growing exponentially. So church, get this. If what we've been reading were all to happen right now, that would mean over 2 billion people gone. A fourth of the earth's population will be destroyed, either by means of a war, famine, or pestilence. And this is just the beginning of the tribulation. The prophet Daniel spoke about this time, and he said in Daniel chapter 12, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. In Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7, the prophet Jeremiah said, Alas! That day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. That's referring to the the Jewish nation that will be saved at the end. And even the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, church, as I pointed out earlier, I warned you, right? What we're going through at this point of the book of Revelation is heavy stuff. These are some of the heaviest chapters in the Bible. But here's what you and I need to know. This stuff is real. This stuff is real, and this is going to happen. Just like all the other predictions in the Bible that were uttered before they happened, and they did happen this too will happen one day. And I think you, are probably, you probably have enough courage and understanding of what's going on in the world right now to see how the possibility of these things happening is not that far away. It's not that impossible, right? But having said what I've said, even though we're going through some of the toughest portions of Scripture, I want to encourage you not to become anxious. Not to become fearful and to focus on these things, or to focus on the Antichrist, rather put your focus on Jesus Christ. Amen? Because you see, church, everything the Antichrist is, Jesus is not. And everything the Antichrist is not, Jesus Christ is. The Antichrist will be nothing more than a false, deceptive politician, but Jesus will be the faithful and true ruler and king of the earth. The Antichrist promises peace, but he delivers war. However, Jesus promises peace, and he will deliver on his promise. Why? Because he is the prince of peace. The Antichrist brings famine, but Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever follows me and believes in me will never hunger. The Antichrist will be everything the world says at once, but Jesus Christ is and will be everything the world truly needs. Amen? Amen? You see, church, what these events really calls people to do is to make a decision. You're either going to hide from God or you're going to run to Him. Can I say that again? You're either going to hide from God or you are going to run to Him. We're going to go through the other seals next time, but I'm going to jump ahead to verse 15 to show you something. And I'll start to close with this. When the severity of these events come upon the Earth, it says, "Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? You know, church, when you think about this, when you read this, it's quite sad. Because instead of them kneeling and bowing and humbling themselves to the one who is behind this and surrendering to the Lamb, they just hide themselves. They hide themselves and they just ask the mountains and rocks to fall on them. And like I said a moment ago, we have a choice. It's either we hide from God or we run to God. And you know what, church? That's always been the choice through our time and eternity, and that will be the choice even at the end of the age. You can either run from God or you can run to God, and I guarantee you, running to Him is a lot better. Amen? Amen. And church, that's why it's important to preach the full counsel of God's Word, not just the easy stuff. Because the end goal is not to pump people up but to help them go up. Amen? Amen. We want to see as many people escaping these things and firstly be found in His grace and then secondly be found in His glory in heaven one day. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we, we give people opportunities to know Jesus. And if you find yourself today in the position of having run from God your whole life, or turn from him at some point, I want to give you an opportunity in just a moment to run to him. Let's pray together as the worship team comes up. Lord, thank you that you love us enough to tell us and show us through this incredibly detailed vision that John has called the book of Revelation, what is coming on the earth at some point in the future. As we've seen today, John writes about some difficult things. But Lord, we take comfort in the fact that at the end, when you return, after having purged the earth and taken back the creation that is rightfully yours, after man has had his ultimate day and no one has brought the peace that the world has so longed for, you will rule and reign as the Prince of Peace forever. Lord, we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, I pray that there would be some of us, Lord, that would find peace with God now. Until there is worldwide peace, I pray that there would be individual peace. As hearts are surrendered to you, as sin is forgiven, as people in what Jesus did for them on Calvary's cross, and as their lives are transformed by the blood of Jesus. And with our heads bowed and eyes still closed, if you're saying, I haven't found that peace yet, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that call today. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Or maybe you've just heard about Jesus from your friends. Maybe you go to church sporadically so you've heard bits and pieces of the gospel. However, you haven't yet personally given your life to Him and received Him into your heart as your Savior. You don't know that piece. You don't have that purpose in your life. You don't have that assurance that you will be with Him one day. But you're here right now. And it's time for you to do something about that. Either come back to Him if you've wandered and and strayed from Him or come to Him for the first time and surrender. Stop hiding yourself from God. Run to Him this morning. If that's you this morning, I want to ask you to come up to the front and I would be privilege to lead you in a prayer of repentance and salvation is that you this morning is there anyone in the house this morning that says I've been running from God my whole life and I need to run to him this morning I've said it before and I'll say it again none of us are guaranteed another tomorrow tomorrow Today is the day of salvation. If you have any inkling in your heart that something is tugging in your heart, don't wait. Run to the front this morning and give your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been at a place in, through a journey of the past few years where you've run from God. Something's happened in your life and you've turned from God and you want to come back to Him this morning. If you want to make a, a recommitment this morning, if you want to come forward, do that as well. Thank you, Jesus. Maybe we can all stand, church. We're going to just respect this moment. I want to ask someone to pray individually for this man. But for those online, perhaps you're saying, I want to give my heart to the Lord. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Father God, I come to you today in the name of Jesus and acknowledge to you that I am a sinner. Father, I believe that your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, shed his precious blood on the cross of Calvary and died for my sins. And I am willing to turn from my sin today. I am willing to confess with my own mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe with every part of my heart that you, Father, raised Jesus from the dead. I accept Jesus Christ as my own personal Savior. And from today, I declare that my life belongs to you. I open up my heart to receive your love and all that you have for me. I receive the Holy Spirit of God to teach me, to guide me, and to lead me all the days of my life. I pray this all in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen.